welcome to today's episode. Today I'm going to be reading the second half of Neville Goddard's lecture titled The Pattern Man. So if you haven't already listened to part one, you want to go back and listen to that first. Um, I would highly recommend that. All right, so let's get into part two of The Pattern Man. Neville continues to tell his audience, Now, this is far more important than to tell you how to make a million, which is a simple thing for you if you really want it and you are willing to give the time to it. Those who came here tonight thinking that that would be part of tonight's talk, then for your benefit I will tell you a story. I have repeated it unnumbered times, but I will tell it again if you are here for that purpose. Your own wonderful human imagination is the being that I speak of when I speak of God. When I say God became as we are, that we may be as he is, I am speaking of your imagination. And you cannot get away from your imagination. And by him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 3. That's your imagination. There isn't a thing in this world that you see now and call it a fact that wasn't first only imagined. The building, the clothes you wear, the chairs on which you are seated, this little mic, everything was first only imagined and then executed. Well, if all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, good, bad, or indifferent, try to find some other maker than your own wonderful human imagination. Try to find it. You may say Edison did it in his imagination, Einstein did it in his imagination, Show me one other instrument other than the human imagination that conceived anything in this world, and that is God. If all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made, then you conclude that he must be the human imagination. So I tell you, your own wonderful human imagination is the God of whom I speak. That is the being that actually... Sorry, I scrolled down too far... So that is the being that actually will awaken within you. But now to get things in this world, assume that you are. All things are possible to him. Assume that you are the man that you want to be, or the woman that you want to be. And although at the moment of your assumption, your reason, your senses deny it, if you dare to persist in that assumption, as though it were true, that assumption in a way unknown to your rational conscious mind, will harden into fact. Then knows how to actually build that series of events necessary to make it so in your world. If you really want to be what you call secure, say in finances, dare to assume that you are secure, and live as though you were. Sleep as though you were, and then it will happen in your world that and then it will happen in your world that will cause you to leave your present environment and move into the state that you have assumed. If you wait for things to change before you dare to assume, you will wait forever. Circumstances cannot change themselves. You change them by changing your concept of self. To attempt to change the world before you change your own imaginal activity is to struggle against the very nature of things. Now you say, well, I am reaping these things in my world and I didn't make them. No, you have forgotten the blossom time. 
What you are now reaping is simply the fruit of some forgotten blossom time. You have a very faulty memory. We all have. We can't remember when we set in motion what we are now reaping as a harvest. But everything in our world was once planted as an imaginal act. And it has, it has not a physical cause. It has an imaginal cause. Every natural effect in this world has an imaginal cause and not a natural cause. A natural cause only seems. It is a delusion of a faulty memory because man cannot remember the blossom time when he actually set it in motion. If you will try that, then if you came tonight to hear something more practical, then that is the practical side of this teaching. But may I tell you, I consider that what is most profoundly spiritual is most directly practical. For if you really give all your attention to this pattern and set your hope fully on this unveiling of the Christ in you, it will be far more profitable than seeking to become rich in the world. If this thing should only unfold within you, then the world is yours. You don't have any desire for the fantastic claims that people make in this world, so if you really give all your attention to the hope, as Peter said, set your hope fully upon the glory, upon the grace that is coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1.13. If Jesus Christ is already in me, as told me in the letters of Paul, then I can only wait for the unveiling of that Jesus Christ within me. And this is the hope that makes it wisdom to go after the burdens of this long, dark night of time. So you find yourself in pain, find yourself limited by some infirmity for a little while. Bear in mind, he took upon himself our infirmities and bore our diseases. And his name is I Am. So when you say that I am doing it all by myself and he is not bearing it with me, Remember, his name is I Am, and I Am, which is the real name of God, became as limited as you are, and now bears your infirmities and your diseases, and he does the suffering. But in the end, he will awaken in you as you, and you will be the Lord Jesus, and your son will bear witness of your fatherhood. And he is the Messiah in Scripture, as told us in Samuel, and told us in the Psalms. And when you meet him, his name is David. You are the Lord Jesus, and David called you the Lord Jesus, my Father. He calls you my Lord. He calls you my God, for that is the story of Scripture. Man has, com has been completely educated out of it, and he brings his prefabricated misconceptions of Scripture to a message of this nature. While it doesn't dovetail with what he has been taught, therefore he goes away saying, I didn't hear it, or I don't care for it. He still wants his external God to whom to pray, and if his prayers are not answered, then he will say to himself that God did not think it wise to grant us prayer, in spite of the fact that we are told whatever we ask for will be granted. He didn't say if it was good for you, he just said you should ask for it, but he made this statement. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and you will. Read it in the 11th chapter of the book of Mark, Mark 11:24. Whatever you ask, believe that you have received it, and you will. If we know that he bears up, or that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know we have obtained the request made of him. 
read that in the first epistle of John, the fifth chapter, 15th verse. These are statements made by the awakened man. Therefore, if the prayer is not answered, you are praying to a wrong God. But if you know that the God to whom you pray is your own wonderful human imagination, then, and then, then instead of begging, you appropriate. You appropriate the state. So I call it the subjective appropriation of the objective hope. What is my objective hope? Well, I appropriate it subjectively. I go within and I simply appropriate it. I simply assume the feeling of my wish fulfilled. I appropriate it. And if my wish fulfilled were true, how would I see the world in which I live? And then do everything to make me see it as I would see it. If it were, see, see the people in my world as I would have to see them. And let them see me as they would be compelled to see me. If what I am doing is an actual external fact. If they know me and I know them. And something happens in my life that becomes public knowledge, well, then they would know it. Then let them see me as they would have to, as they would have to see me, if it were true. So the subjective appropriation of the objective hope is prayer. You don't beg anyone, don't ask anyone. You simply appropriate it. For if he is in me, where would I go to ask him? As we are told, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? 2 Corinthians 13.5 Then test yourselves to see if you really realize it. Put yourself to the test. If I say Jesus Christ, and your mind jumps on the outside to something other than yourself, you have failed the test. For you are told, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, said he, you fail to meet the test. Well, you have just had the test. So when I use the words Jesus Christ and something on the outside comes to you, you have failed the test, for Jesus Christ is in you. If I go to him in my prayer, where would I go but to myself? He became as I am, that I may be as he is. He actually became me. He is in me as my own wonderful human imagination. For by him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1.3 So, I go within and appropriate the state. So the subjective appropriation of my objective hope is my prayer. And having appropriated it, I drop it, as I would the seed into the earth. The seed must fall into the earth and rot before it can be made alive. Well, just drop it. And then in its own good time, it will come into harvest. It takes an interval of time between my appropriation and its fulfillment. So having done it, I drop it and go about my father's business, appropriating other states. Not only for myself, but for myself pushed out, which I call others. For in the end, there is only one. One day we will know that you and I are one. For you must be the same being that I am, though we are individualized. And we will remain individualized. But you must be the being that I am. Because you are the father of my son. How on earth could you be the father of my son. And not be as I am. So I will know you. Know you in eternity. As who you are. A friend. I will know you as my brother. 
but I will also know you as God. Everyone, in the end, I will know as God, the only God. But I will know them as my brother, and know them as my friend. All will be God. Not one will be lost, in spite of all that is said to the contrary. There is no hell waiting for you. There is only an infinite body of love, an infinite body of perfection, which one day you will wear, and wearing it, nothing can remain in your presence that is imperfect. As you walk by, as you glide by, everything will be molded in harmony with the perfection that is springing within you. You do not need a realm called heaven. You are heaven. The body you will wear will be perfect, and in its presence nothing can remain imperfect, and that's heaven. So if you went into the hell of hells, it would be automatically and instantaneously transformed into heaven. So you don't need love. All you need is the body of the risen Lord within you. And when he rises within you, that body is an infinite body of love and perfection. So here the pattern I know from experience is buried in man. It's the way of escape from the world of death into the world of eternity. And that pattern was built into man before the foundation of the world. He prepared the way for his own escape. And when the time is fully come to depart this world, as Paul said, the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And now Paul is about to depart. But in his departure he spends his time from morning to evening expounding the matter to them, trying to convince them about Jesus, trying to testify to the kingdom of God, and using scripture to support his argument both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some believed what he said, and some disbelieved. And everyone who comes into the same state of consciousness where the pattern unfolds within him is going to find the same crowd, some believing and some disbelieving, until one day it happens in them. And they too will be confronted with those who will believe them and disbelieve them. And it will go on and on until the end when all are redeemed. When all are redeemed, it is by the one pattern. So I say there is no other way of redemption. When people tell me diets will do it or meditation will do it or this other ism will do it or some other savior, there's no other savior. The savior is a pattern man. And the pattern is in man and it's called in scripture Jesus. There's no other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. No one comes to the Father except by me, John fourteen six. The one speaking in these quotations is the pattern man, and until this pattern unfolds in man, he remains in the world of death. Well, when it unfolds within him, he is that which unfolds within him. He is the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the Lord God Jehovah. And because he is the father, there must be a son, and the son stands before him, which is the sum total of humanity with all its experiences personified. And that infinite beauty is called David. He is a David of biblical fame, and he calls you father. Now let us go into the silence. Okay, so looks like it continued. So... Um, 
Neville continues, last night after the meeting, a lady asked me if I would touch on what I said earlier about who saw him. He appeared first to Peter and then to the twelve, then to five hundred, and then to James and to the apostles, and finally to Paul. Well, I will touch it just briefly for her sake. When he appears, it is simply the man in whom the pattern is awakened. It is that man, whether you can, can or whether you call him by a biblical name or by any other name. Anyone in whom the pattern of redemption awakes is that man called Jesus. But you may know him in this world as George or Peter or Neville or any other name. I know in my own case they must now start. It has already started. Those who see me in spirit as the being that I am claiming that I am, I am claiming it only because it has happened in me. I'm not speculating. I'm not theorizing. The whole thing has unfolded itself in me. There's a gentleman here tonight whose wife had this experience this week and wrote me this letter. She says, I had this wonderful experience where you gave this banquet. It was beautifully done and very formal. On your right sat one who seemed to have been, or should have been, an apostle. He was well-dressed. I sat to your left. I knew the truth of what he was saying, but he was hysterical, because it struck him funnily. He told you that he had a dream that you were Jesus Christ. And then he started to laugh in a strange, disbelieving manner, and he kept on laughing as he repeated the dream that he had. <coughs> Excuse me. She said, I knew that the dream that he had was true. And in spite of the fact that it was a dream, he didn't think it true. He disbelieved it completely, but I knew it was true. Well, that scripture, she is a lady. In the end of the book of Luke, it is the woman who comes to the apostles. And it is the woman who said, he is risen, Luke twenty four thirty four, And the apostles thought it an idle tale. See Luke twenty four eleven, And they did not believe it. There's your story. She believed it, and she was not judged among the apostles. He was he was judged among the apostles, the man who sat at my right, the honored position at the table, and did not believe it. The apostles named as scripture were not sent until after. They were told, remain in the city until you are imbued with power from above. They had not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit, so they could not be sent. So they are coming, one after the other are coming to make that number. First he appears to Peter. Well, I told you who was Peter in my case, a little girl, eight years old, Malo. She was the one who saw the thing in detail. Then came others. Now they are gathering, no bragging about it. If it happened in me, it happened in me. There is not a living thing I've done to warrant it. It's grace. It is a gift, unwarranted, unearned. It is God's gift. Grace is God's gift to himself, to man, which did not, um, which man did not earn. He did not merit it. It's a gift. So no one can brag. So if it happened in me, which it has, I cannot brag. But I do know there must be witnesses to confirm that it happened in me. And his wife, he is sitting right here. His wife was one who actually witnessed it. This past week. Are there any other questions please? A lady says yes. When you meditate I understand. You raise your chin. Neville it has so, says. It has no significance. If I raise my chin for one moment. It really has no significance. If I do it I'm not aware of it. I turn my attention inwards. Into my skull. And I ask no favors of anyone. 
and simply go in. If I have nothing of the moment to appropriate, I just simply, for the joy of looking on the inside, to watch the golden clouds form. They always form like a halo around the head. It's a simple matter, as though the whole dark convolutions of the brain grow luminous, and it takes no time for them to become luminous. So I simply observe them. If I go for a purpose while there, I appropriate my gift or appropriate my wish. But if I raise my chin, my dear, don't think for one second that it has any significance. So don't duplicate any physical action. Imitate the action in this sense. Go within. Close your eyes to the outer world. Go within and center your attention within your skull. That's where he is. That is where your true being is. And the lady says, further question about meditating and that in a class and that in a class, a bishop told her not to lower her head, but keep her chin up when she meditates. Neville says, well, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Neville says, well, my dear, if he said it to you and you believed it, I personally have nothing to say. I only will tell you this much. Your physical posture means nothing. There are people here in the Western world who have no training for the lotus posture. And yet there are people coming from the East who insist that they get on the floor and sit right on the floor and get into a tight posture, and they cannot even unlock themselves afterwards. Now, I would like to take the same Eastern man and put him into a Western posture, and he won't be able to unlock himself either. It's all nonsense. So I must do what the Eastern man does. He comes over here, and he come, came to LA, and got $500 from each person to take a course with him. He was holy of house. So someone asked him on TV, why do you advertise yourself so? Jesus never did. And he giggled and giggled and said, Well, that's why he took so long to get started. And he's a holy man. And all these people with lots of money, well, you see, money doesn't care who owns it. So, sorry, I'm scrolling down. So they have fortunes and they give them 500 to teach them how to sit in a lotus posture and become holy. They're just as unholy today as when they gave him the 500, only he is richer. He has gone back to his little ashram in India with all of the tens of thousands that he got from the people here who are as stupid as they come. No physical posture. If you feel comfortable lying on your back, lie on your back. If you are a Catholic, as you said, you were raised a Catholic and you bowed your head in a certain adoration. With a certain feeling of devotion, go ahead. Do anything that is to you natural. If you want to put your hands on your knee, and they will remain comfortable and alert, put them on your knee. Do whatever is natural to you. But all this nonsense that you must do, this, do that. And they all live double lives anyway. You must eat that and you can't eat the other thing. But don't follow him into this little ashram because you will see him eating what he has told you not to eat. I recall a man who was a physical culturist of the day. I'm going back now to the 20s. He was quite the boy. He had a magazine called Physical Culture and he had all these things. He was against eating meat and he was going to live to be a thousand, but he didn't. He dropped off when he was 68 or so. And he did all kinds of things. Well, a friend of mine was a waiter in the rooms, and this man had a huge suite of rooms. Well, he put in his order, and my friend, being the waiter, 
carried his order. He had a steak that big, but he ate it behind locked doors. So he had this huge big steak and all the things that washed it down. While in his magazine he said meat was anathema. You must not do these things. So he told the magazines, or so he sold the magazines to all the people, and they believed he did what he preached. A gentleman says, what does the scripture to one untimely born mean? Neville says, to one untimely born, that is what Paul said in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He meant that it came so shockingly suddenly that there was no warning of labor pains. One untimely born, and God revealed his son to him. It came just like that, as told us, like a thief in the night. No warning. So let no one tell you they can see your aura, and therefore you are right on the verge of it. What nonsense. I can see all kinds of auras for you if you pay me enough. So they see this, see that, see the other. Forget all this nonsense. When it happens, it happens suddenly and unexpectedly. So that, as Paul said, it came to me as one untimely born, because in my own case, 12 years ago in this city, I too could have said untimely born. For here I, and that is the end. So I don't know what happened to the rest of that, but that was the end of the document or the lecture. All right, so that is the end of part two of Neville Goddard's lecture titled The Pattern Man. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. I will see you guys in the next episode for another lecture. All right, you guys have a great day. Bye.